when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil I. Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. It's the final episode in our centennial series covering companies that are 100 years old, and I'm talking to Chris Cox, the CEO of Hasbro. Hasbro just turned 100, and I have to tell you, I did not know the company was started in 1923 by the Hassenfeld brothers, the Hasbros. This is my favorite fact now. I've told everyone, and now I'm telling you. It's the Hasbros. Here in 2023, Hasbro is a gigantic company that makes everything from Transformers to Lincoln Logs to My Little Pony and Monopoly. It also makes Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons, which are massive and growing businesses in tabletop games. Chris was actually the head of that division, which is called Wizards of the Coast, before he became the CEO of Hasbro overall last year. Since then, he started the process of restructuring the company, which is pure decoder bait. He's also dealt with some crises. He's fended off an activist investor that wanted him to spin off Wizards of the Coast into a new company. The Magic community was upset that too many card sets were being released, including some rare collector cards that could suddenly be bought by anybody with enough money. Then an attempt to change the open gaming license for Dungeons and Dragons led to a fan backlash, and Hasbro walked the entire plan back. We talked about these challenges, how he handled them, and what it means for toys and games to have such passionate fandoms. It's really changed how Hasbro operates. Chris is also selling off part of E1, the company's TV and film production company. We talked about why and how he decided to do that. Chris is a lifelong gamer. You'll hear him talk about that history several times, and he's keenly aware that toys and games have now become an adult market as much as a kid's one. This is a really remarkable conversation. Toys are a big, complex, changing business. Okay, Chris Cox, CEO of Hasbro. Here we go. Chris Cox, you are the CEO of Hasbro. Welcome to Decoder. Neil, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, really excited to talk to you. You're the final episode in our Centennial series. Oh, wow. Yeah, we're talking to the executives of companies that are over 100 years old. Yeah. Hasbro just hit the mark this year. That's pretty exciting. It has come a long way from where it started. I will tell you, I did not know that the name Hasbro is literally the Has Brothers and it's bros. (laughs) Hassenfeld Brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very good Mm. that they were like, we're bros. In 1923. (laughs) Yeah, they were before their time. I I could do the whole episode on just that because it's so good. You took over as CEO at the beginning of 2022, so just about a year ago. Yeah, end of February last year. Before that, you were head of Wizards of the Coast, which is where Magic the Gathering happens. There's the digital gaming division. Uh, Tell me about your time in charge of that division, which is 
where a lot of the action of the company is, a lot of the profitability of the company is, and then stepping into the CEO role. Yeah, so I started at Wizards of the Coast um, around the middle of 2016. Uh, I've been a longtime fan of Wizards games, the two biggest being Magic the Gathering and D&D. I started playing D&D when I was around 10 or 11 in Cincinnati, Ohio, my hometown. My best friend, Han Schroeder's house, uh, his older brother, Thad, uh, introduced it to us. And then I started playing Magic uh, my junior year of college, about a year or so after it came out. My girlfriend moved away to medical school and Magic cards moved into my dorms to help uh, fill the void. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, being able to come on board to uh, a company like Wizards that have been such a big part of my life, you know, D&D helped inspire me to get into the video game industry in the late 90s when I joined a, a secret project called Xbox back in 1999 <laughs> at Microsoft uh, after playing the original Baldur's Gate. It was a dream come true and a real honor. You know, I was able to kind of take a torch that I had picked up as a kid and was able to carry it forward and make it a little brighter for new generations of fans. You know, when I joined in 2016, Wizards was, you know, I think it ended 2015, we were about $450 million. Uh, last year, uh, the business grew to a little under $1.3 billion. You know, we had amazing player growth. We had some nice revenue and profitability growth. Um, and we were able to do that across the portfolio of games. You know, Magic was a was a big driver, uh, but D and D has also had a has a fantastic run, particularly since the launch of Fifth Edition back in 2014, 2015. So, you know, that was an amazing experience. It was a really great introduction to Hasbro, which also has you know a number of storied brands above and beyond Wizards. You know, I think I I had a a nice part to play in making Wizards and making games in general an even bigger and more important part of the Hasbro story than what it was even five or six years ago. So now you're CEO of the whole company. You mentioned there are other brands there. You've got Monopoly, Candyland, Transformers, My Little Pony. There's a part of the company that makes TV shows and movies. I want to talk about that. You're selling that part of the company. How are things structured now at Hasbro? Yeah, so Hasbro has three primary business units. Um, we have Wizards of the Coast and Digital Gaming that does kind of like our older skewing games and then a lot of our video games and kind of digital services. We have what we call consumer products, which really is kind of the toys division. So toys does like all these iconic properties like Transformers, My Little Pony, Baby Alive, our beloved series of board games from Monopoly to Clue to Candyland uh, to Trivial Pursuit. And then we have our entertainment division, which is called E1, which does everything from you know, kids animation for big hits like Peppa Pig to, you know, blockbuster movies like what we're doing this weekend with Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves with our partners at Paramount. And then they also do a host of, you know, kind of non-Hasbro IP uh, entertainment uh, for big screens and small. You know, they have hit reality series like Naked and Afraid movies that they've been a part of like 1917 and mrs harris goes to paris and most recently the woman king uh, as well as television shows now i feel like i should buy you one you made that's, there it is there's a the pitch <laughs> yeah oh let me roam around the couch see if i can find enough change to pick this up from you uh better be a big couch i do yeah, fair, <laughs> enough. fair enough i do want to come back to why right if it's going well why you're thinking about selling it because there has been a lot of news around that and what you're planning to do with it but tell me what those those are the divisions right there's Yep. Toys, there's Wizards of the Coast, which Toys, is, games, and entertainment, basically. Toys, games, and entertainment. We talk a lot about org charts in the show. It's like secretly a show about org charts. 
how are they arranged? Do they share a lot of resources at the top? Are they mostly independent? You can see how most people's conception of Hasbro is you make Transformers, and then you make a Transformers movie, and then that turns around into a Transformers video game, and that's all Hasbro. But you actually have three different divisions that might be pulling in different directions and certainly experiencing different kinds of markets. So how, how tightly aligned are they? Well, I would say historically that we've run the businesses fairly independent from each other. But, you know, over the last year uh, as being CEO, you know, we're in the process of reorganizing and driving more commonality between the divisions. Um, you know, today we have three divisions. We have games, toys and entertainment. Uh, we're transitioning with uh, the sale of, you know, the non Hasbro related aspects of our entertainment division to two primary divisions, games, and then toys, entertainment, and licensing. And then those will be supported by what we call five horizontals. So like think about the business units as the verticals. They house kind of like the brands. They drive the major product innovation for the primary expressions of those brands, which Hasbro being a company which is all about play is the play experiences. And then these horizontals help to kind of support the brands across the various executions that we have across what we call the brand blueprint, which is uh, the strategy of the company. And the strategy of the company is basically, hey, you know, we have this collection of brands. We really focus on seven, which we call our franchise brands. And then we execute those brands across a blueprint of multimedia experiences that allows us to reach our consumers, segment them, and then engage and, you know, hopefully profitably engage them across a range of products, services, video games, channels, as well as entertainment and location-based experiences. And so the verticals drive the brands and the horizontals drive the execution across that brand blueprint, whether it's uh, movies and TV shows, licensed partners, our channels, um, our direct assets like Hasbro Pulse, uh, which is our big direct channel, as well as video games and digital services, which is partially what the Wizards team helps to drive. So when you say the verticals drive the brands, Verticals, business units. The business units. So that's toys and games. And so toys and games is going to say, all right, we're doing Transformers. And then your horizontals are, there's a video game studio. They're, uh, you know, the video games, licensing, entertainment, um, our channel execution, and then other kind of ancillary supports like experiences, location-based experiences, et cetera, and direct. The reason I say it's secretly a show about org charts is I feel like the, the thing a CEO has the most control over is the structure of the company to get whatever outcomes they want. You were at Wizards. Yep. You operated in the old structure. You became the CEO. You're like, this is the new structure. What made you want to make the change? Well, I think it's a couple things. I think first and foremost, um, you know, when Wizards was a $450 million company, just to use kind of my own personal experience, our brands were big, but by gaming blockbuster standards, relatively smaller scale and relatively constrained audiences. And as we've doubled and tripled the size of those businesses and those brands, it's become apparent that those brands are bigger than just the primary game expressions they have. You know, our consumers want to be able to experience those in entertainment. They want to be able to experience those in kind of lifestyle merchandising. They want to be able to collect things. So rather than trying to recreate those functions inside of a business unit, which is pretty hard because uh, you got to do the recruiting and it costs a lot of money, why don't we leverage that expertise that we already have across the business? And so for, from my perspective, you know, let's give the business units the P&L. Let's give them uh, kind of the 
be the Jiminy Crickets for the brands, you know, kind of like the, the heart and soul <laughs> of the brands, thinking about like the consciousness of the brands. But then let's empower like these central functions that are very good at executing in entertainment. They're very good at executing with licensed partners and have them cross the brands and make them kind of services to help, help the business units expand what they're trying to do. And so to me, that just makes good business sense. It helps to drive kind of specialty and expertise. It helps us to be able to scale the business. And it helps us to be able to do it across a relatively standard matrix of executional opportunities and partnership opportunities, which just make it easier to drive a business at scale. You know, Hasbro is like a $6 billion business. So uh, driving things at scale and being able to drive it efficiently is really important to our success and to our shareholders. So you're, you're going from kind of the classic divisional structure to kind of this hybrid functional structure. Do those functional units, the central teams, report to you? Uh, well, it's a little bit of a hybrid approach. So, so for instance, some of the horizontals report into the actual business units. So like, you know, wizards, like gaming is good at games. And so digital games reports into games. Toys relies a lot on partnerships, particularly for license partnerships and out of aisle kind of toy opportunities and licensing opportunities. So licensing reports into toys. So it's a little bit of like the, the business units are both their own P&Ls and their own business units, but then they also have like service elements as well. And then we have a centralized commercial organization that drives kind of like our, our distribution agreements, our relationships with our major retailers. Um, they've got a team that specializes in direct businesses like we're developing with Hasbro Pulse. We centralize our supply chain teams, uh, driving that on a global scale. We centralize our finance teams, our HR teams, and our legal functions, because that just drives some like verticality and yeah. specialty um, and a little bit of being able to cross-reference uh, resources. So I'm going to ask you a rude question, but I'll come, I'll come back to this topic, but I just very, no, no worries. very directly. Rude question, 10 minutes in. All right. Yeah. <laughs> You had an activist investor in your stock recently. You ultimately won that proxy battle. But one of the things they wanted you to do was spin off Wizards of the Coast and make it its own company, which is pretty easy to do if it's a division and it has some of that redundant functionality inside of it, and pretty hard to do if you've got all these horizontal units servicing it. Was that any part of your rationale here? Like, we should make this a harder idea to have? No, I mean, you know, like... Obviously, we took a lot of feedback from both that activist investor as well as from our investors as a whole, you know, and I wouldn't say that our organization was led by any one particular piece of investor feedback or an activist feedback. I think our organizational model was led based on what our strategy is. And our strategy is goes back to this idea of a blueprint. Yeah. The center of our blueprint is the consumer and consumer understanding. Then it's about the brands that we want to execute on behalf of that consumer. And then it's kind of like a bunch of executional nodes that we want to drive that we believe is important as a play company that's kind of turbocharged by storytelling. And really, that's what drives all of our decision making around kind of how we think about how we organize and where we think we can see efficiencies. Let me ask you a much more fun question now. So you've described... Yeah, no worries. I mean, we'll, we'll do some rude ones in the mix down the line. We just got to... <laughs> you got peaks and valleys, right? Oh, yeah. You've described a structure that's really good at getting value out of your existing big franchises. We live in a very IP-driven world of sequels and expansions, but most people who I've told, hey, I'm talking to the CEO of Hasbro, are like, I've got a great idea for a toy or a Nerf gun. There's a sense that this is where people get to invent fun new things to play with. So where do Hasbro's new ideas come from? Are you, are you prioritizing that? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean... 
as big as the brands are at Hasbro and as beloved as they are, at, at the end of the day, and you know, this is probably my bias, I think we're a product company. A games company, an entertainment company, a toy company, you know, we're we're dissimilar to a classic packaged goods company in that our products inherently have an emotional connection to people. They create kind of joy. They create community and socialization opportunities that something like toothpaste or toilet paper never really could, at least not on purpose. And so because of that, our products really kind of drive how we think about our brands and the innovation and the customer understanding around those products, I think drives everything that we do as a company. So, you know, inherent in our business unit structure, um, the people who ultimately are in charge are the product designers and product makers, the creators across the company. They're the special sauce that I think makes Hasbro Hasbro and makes our products great play experiences and ultimately great brands. Marketing is important. Sales is important. You know, supply chain and finance is important. But those just help to enable and expand these great play experiences. So the innovation ultimately starts with consumer understanding coupled with passion for a space and passion for a product line. And what we try to do is we really try to make that as unbridled as we possibly can. You know, we say, hey, there are five categories that we want to be the best in the world in. We want to be the best play company in the world for preschool. We want to be the best play company in the world for blasters and outdoor play. We want to excel at games. We want to excel at action figures and we want to excel at creativity. And inside of those spaces where we have like kind of a category captain brand, whether it's Play-Doh and creativity or Nerf and blasters or Monopoly or Magic or D&D for games, for instance, we give our designers a wide purview to be able to innovate and uh, draw inspiration from. And if they happen to come up with an idea that maybe doesn't have a perfect fit inside of an existing brand, we have the capability to execute across outside of an existing brand. You know, toys are a space that every year, probably 50% of the category is brand new. Board games are very, very similar. And so we have to have the capacity to execute across uh, both within our brands and have innovation inside of there, but then outside of our brands and the categories that we want to play in, because that's the best way to grow and the best way to kind of excite our fans. Is there a room full of secret toys that you get to go in and just be like that one? That one, not that one. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't really have a big say inside of that pipeline. It's more uh, my purview. Dude, if I was a CEO, I'd be like, I just, once a quarter, I'm just going to look at all the toys. <laughs> I definitely get to play with all the toys. And particularly, I get to play with all the games before we kind of go through the various stages of green lighting. But I mean, we, you know, we have a team of thousands of people who are experts at what they do, who help to kind of start with thousands of ideas and narrow them down to hundreds of concepts and then, you know, dozens of actual products that we ship every year and given in a given category. Plus we work with like some of the best inventors in the world bringing in like great outside ideas. Probably we'll ship call it 2 to 3000 SKUs per year, about half of which are new and over half of those are usually sourced from outside the company. So, you know, we try to create as big and wide of a funnel as we possibly can. And, you know, from a management perspective, what we try to do is just provide priorities and then objective metrics about what we want to see a product be able to do and how we want to see it be able to delight a consumer and, and help enrich our partners, particularly our channel partners, making it a good opportunity for them and a fair opportunity for us. And then outside of that, you know, we try to take the gloves off and allow our innovators to innovate. 
What's a metric for a Transformers toy beyond sales? Oh, well, you have uh, like NSAT, you'll have like shareability, like viral, like kind of shareability, like how much do people like love it? How much do they share it with their friends? So you're, you're, you ship an Optimus Prime and you look to see if people are tagging on social media? Yeah, people are talking about it, uh, talking it up on social media. Like we have ways to be able to measure how much is positive, how much is neutral, how much is negative, who's sharing with who as much as we possibly can. Now there are certain that depends on the product line. Like if the product's going to like a six-year-old, yeah. we have a fair number of rules that prevent us from getting too deep. But if something goes after a 13 plus kind of audience, um, you know, we have a little bit more flexibility to be able to learn and kind of track how our products are performing and how our brand metrics look. And that's all from social media or are there other ways you track it? Yeah. So we have social media. Uh, we have fairly sophisticated uh, proprietary market research, like attitude usage and awareness studies that help us track like the performance of an upcoming film. We do tens of thousands of play tests per year uh, with consumers where we bring in little kids, we'll bring in collectors, we'll bring in moms and dads and have them kind of experience a product in its early stages. We'll do mock-ups of uh, retail uh, aisles, or we'll go into stores with partners and actually have people shop and kind of watch how they buy all of our digital games and like our direct platforms. We're able to have, you know, understand what the click stream looks like as people go through them. What's kind of a heat map of places that people really enjoy inside of a game or spend a lot of time on? What are some areas that are relatively cold or tend to kind of like are lossy in terms of people being able to play? And we're able to ingest all of that together to kind of start building a composite of what's working and what's not working across a brand or across a toy or across a game. That's incredible. I never thought about how much testing you must do on an individual toy to see if it's a success. Oh, it's a lot. It's a lot. And then it all kind of, uh, if it's like one of our quote unquote hero toys, then you do like this uh, very complicated uh, volumetric testing where you get tens of thousands of people kind of like giving you feedback on a concept and a product and that ultimately is what leads to our forecasting. And that tends to be pretty accurate. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get into the pivot to software at Hasbro. And Chris will address the criticism that Hasbro is over-monetizing Magic the Gathering. Support for the show comes from the Harvard Business Review, the leading destination for smart management thinkers. You're a business leader, which means you have to deal with several different issues week after week. Look, it can be tough being the one calling the shots, but the Harvard Business Review can be a good place to help lighten the load on your shoulders. There's a lot of great stuff you can find at hbr.org, but for just $10 a month, you can get access to unlimited content, including insider newsletters, case studies, and the HBR mobile app. I had a chance to check out hbr.org, and let me tell you, the articles and case studies are very enlightening. Plus, you'll find podcasts, case studies, videos, newsletters, so much more. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code DECODER right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to hbr.org slash subscriptions, enter promo code DECODER to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and business. We're back. So you announced a strategy at your investor in October that I think this all feeds into. You call it Blueprint 2.0. You've said the word Blueprint a handful of times now. Yep. One of the pieces of that Blueprint was $100 million towards what you called a brand insight platform. 
which was supposed to help you make better decisions and better forecasts what people want. Is that just taking all of this data and asking ChatGPT what toys to make? Like, what, what is a brand insight platform? <laughs> Maybe in three years. Yeah. Right now, it's still a lot of humans. Uh, yeah, so it's basically the brand insights platform is a fancy way of saying how we put together all of our data analytics and market research. Why does that cost $100 million? Well, um, you have to have data analysts. You have to commission market research. You have to um, pay outside firms to help recruit people to come in for focus groups and play tests. You have to pay various analysts externally to help you understand kind of what trends look like. And the $100 million is over the course of like five or six years. So, you know, it's about 15 to $20 million a year, if not more. And then you have to build a bunch of systems. Um, some of them are off the shelf, but some of them are proprietary that you build in the cloud to be able to kind of crunch all that data and then give your employees access to it and make it easy for them to be able to ingest and be able to use in their daily work. So this comes up over and over again on Decoder. I think of Hasbro as a hardware company. You think of it as a product company. I always make some digital products as well, but yep. you're, you're moving a lot of atoms around in addition to all the bits. <laughs> yeah. And now you're like, I got to basically move a whole bunch of like business strategy into a cloud system, some of which I will buy and some of which I have to build. How many software engineers do you have on a project like that? Because that cost tends to rapidly increase. And every com- every CEO I've talked to who's made the big software investment finds himself with more software engineers and hardware engineers over time. Yeah, so I would say I'm just, uh, I'm looking off because I'm just doing the mental calculation. You know, between our IT teams and our data analysts, and our uh, software engineers for like uh, building our direct platforms and our games. You know, I would hazard to guess we probably have in the neighborhood of between 1,000 to 1,500 software-related uh, engineers and product managers and program managers, people who touch code. And are they organized as one group or are they split up, right? The people who are going to build the brand insights platform are maybe not the same as the people writing the code for the next Monopoly game. Well, you have, yeah, they, well, uh, it would be, broadly speaking, it would be split up into three groups. You would have software engineers related to building games and building platforms. Those would be in product groups. Then you'd have IT-related software developers uh, who build kind of like underlying systems. Like, you know, they manage like our AWS cloud. They'd manage like any proprietary servers, any kind of like uh, industrial-grade software we get. Uh, and the vendors that go along with that, like Snowflake or Snowplow or uh, Tableau. And then you'd have a smaller team who would be on the data analyst side who actually would then code inside of those tools and create like uh, uh, proprietary uh, analyst queries. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to think of a toy company that has a data analyst group that employs its own software developers to figure out what toys to make. I mean, that's, at the end of the day, that's what you're you're trying to do here is like make more products that people want. Yeah. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, everything good starts with a great understanding of your customer and of your consumer. And so, you know, most of our software development, I'd say the vast majority of it, is angling towards uh, a better understanding of what our consumer wants and how best to deliver it to them. So this is another decoder trope, but I, it comes up a lot. Whenever you make a lot of database decisions, you're kind of trapped in the past. Like data can really only tell you about the past. And there's a, it just feels like there's a tension here between, okay, we've got a lot of franchises. They're very popular. There's a lot of natural extensions to those. We have a data platform that will tell us what our consumers want more of. And then 50% of the products are new every year, which is incredible for a market to have 50% new products. Yeah. How do you bounce that tension? 
Well, I think you use data as an inspiration, um, but you you shouldn't be shackled by it. It should be something that helps you understand what's working and what's not working. And then you should have kind of a uh, a tolerance for risk uh, and an ability to test and learn very rapidly. And a lot of our data is around kind of like sharing new concepts with consumers, doing kind of rapid prototyping and small scale kind of A-B market tests and understanding kind of what hits and what doesn't hit. And then from that, you know, then we can scale a product relatively rapidly, call it six to nine months from kind of detecting a hit and be able to scale it into something that can be quite big. And, you know, our data analytics doesn't just have to be what we do. We also, you know, we also can look at what other people do. So, you know, a great source of insight for us is what goes on on page three plus on Amazon uh, product results. (laughs) So, you know, what are like the small companies doing or the new innovators doing on things like Kickstarter or e-commerce? that are starting to take off with an audience and finding an audience. And, uh, you know, if a large company like ourselves can either partner with that company, maybe even buy them if it's M&A or get inspired by what that product and category is, then we can pick up insights from that and uh, learn from the trends. This brings me to, I think, the classic decoder question. You have a lot of decisions to make, obviously, about structure, about new products, about which areas of the business to focus on. How do you make decisions? What's your framework? Well, um, I would say it's a three-part framework. The first frame is always what's best for the consumer, what's best for the fan, you know, what would delight them. Because generally speaking, if we're able to delight the fan, usually we're able to profit from it. There's usually a fair value exchange based on that. I think the second area that I focus on is what's good for the shareholder. You know, how do we make sure that what we're doing is profitable it helps position us for growth. And, you know, it's not just a sugar boost that kind of maximizes short-term area under the curve, but kind of long-term area under the curve. And then the last area I really think about is what inspires the employee. You know, people come to Hasbro for a variety of reasons. It's a, it's a good company. Uh, it's got a great reputation. Um, it tends to do well for the world. Uh, we've got a fantastic mission. We're all about bringing joy and community to people. You know, it's uh, very rare for me to go to a cocktail party and people are not jealous of like, wow, you get to do do that. (laughs) It's the toy room, man. Everyone just wants to go to the toy room at work. Yeah, totally. But I I think fundamentally, I think the most important thing that drives our employees is most of them have a similar story to me. You know, they, my story, Candyland is the first board game I remember playing growing up. Transformers and G.I. Joe were my favorite action figures growing up. D&D was kind of like the first kind of serious game I started playing growing up. Magic helped me uh, kind of bridge uh, a a tough time in college uh, as I was growing up. Uh, Baldur's Gate, an original D&D video game, helped to inspire me to get into the video game industry. Like Hasbro is an important part of my life and my fandom of it is genuine. And, you know, that's that's echoed across the majority of our employees. And so I think everyone here wants to not just kind of help drive the fandom. They want to put the fandom in a better place. So I think if we're able to stack up kind of like those three lenses, what's good for the consumer, what's good for the shareholder and what, you know, makes our employees feel good. Generally speaking, when we're able to stack those up and align them, we make really good decisions that tends to be good for our brands and good for the company. So let's put that into practice a little bit. Uh, You've had a busy year and there have been some bumps in the road. Let's start with Magic the Gathering. A lot of new card sets released last year. 
a lot of flack from people saying, okay, we're devaluing some of the legendary cards. And now instead of one of writers called it the Willy Wonka effect, where you never knew, like you might just get the golden ticket, you might get the rare card, but now it's (laughs) pay to play, right? You can just pay a thousand dollars, whatever it is, and get all the rare cards. How are you coming through that? I mean, that that feels like, all right, we're going to really like get the money out of this brand right now. We're going to make more expensive products because it's not just kids, it's adults with money now. And we can just ask them to open their wallets. Well, I think with Magic, I think it's important to keep in mind that brand has been uh, having a great growth and it's been fairly balanced growth. It's been about growth of new players as well as kind of engaging existing players, as well as kind of bringing back players who were lapsed. Um, you know, for some life event, they they stopped playing Magic because they moved away from their gaming group or they moved away from their favorite store. And a couple of years later, they're able to find the game again. So I think being able to grow a brand on a balanced basis is important. And that's something I think we've been adept at doing. The strategy for growing Magic overall over the last, call it five years, has been what we call segmentation. So when I started at Wizards, the primary audience for Magic and almost the sole audience that we focused on for Magic was called the competitive player, kind of like the classic player who liked to play in store, uh, who played uh, a version of the game called Standard, which was like this rapidly rotated version, and that was played mostly in our high-end tournaments. And we saw that there was these other versions of play, but frankly, we were a little scared of them because we weren't sure what it would do to the business. Probably the biggest version was this uh, player-created format called Commander, uh, which was like a four-player format that had these 100-card decks. Um, We were concerned like, ooh, like, you know, would we be, is that as lucrative of a market for us? And should we really (laughs) focus on that? Or should we just have like the players do it? And what we discovered was, is like, hey, you know, if we embrace a growth mindset, if we embrace new segments and actually build bespoke products for them, and again, kind of focus on doing right by the player, we would tend to be rewarded for it. And, you know, fast forward five, six years later, that competitive segment still is an important segment for us, but it's just a little bit bigger than it was about five or six years ago. And almost all the growth in the brand has been from that social player, that commander player, and building products specifically for them. And then secondarily from the collector that we also realized wanted kind of more kind of bespoke products and ways to bling out their deck and have just kind of fun things that they can collect. So, you know, while we have grown kind of like the overall engagement per player and the amount of money that a player might spend with us on the game, in general, we haven't seen a huge growth in the total amount of spend that these players have had because before us making these products, they were going out and kind of buying these products on the secondary market and spending about the same money as what they spend with us when we actually give them a package product. So the growth of the brand has been tremendous. With the new player growth, the secondary market has grown, which is good, I think, for everybody. But then also the primary market has especially grown uh, because we've had a segmentation approach and, and just embraced segments that previously were kind of ignoring and uh, made them happy and, you know, and I think aligned everything from player to the shareholder to the employee. Well, some of the criticism here is that you're maybe aligned more towards the shareholder, right? Like at one point, uh, there's a note from Bank of America, which said Tasbro is over monetizing magic, which is frankly just an incredible thing for a bank to say about any product, (laughs) right? We're taking too much money out of this product. And they're argument was that Hasbro is making it less valuable, making it less special, and trading short-term profits for long-term brand durability. Well, yeah, I mean, the Bank of America in that report certainly had uh, their opinion. 
you know, that was done by an analyst who covered the brand for about three months, just to give it a little bit of perspective. The brand has grown for 13 out of the last 14 years. Going back to the data point, we will typically pull tens of thousands of players per year on a brand like Magic. We will talk to thousands of individual stores. Um, probably the most important channel for Magic are like mom and pop game stores around the world uh, that do relatively modest businesses. They're small businesses. They're like 250,000 to 400,000 of total kind of ring registers. Um, you know, maybe the owner's pulling in 50, 60, maybe $70,000 a year. They're doing this because they're passionate about it, not because, you know, they want to get uber rich. So we're very careful about how we curate the experience for those stores, make sure that they have a good experience, make sure the players have a good experience. And I think success kind of speaks for itself. They're growing for 13 out of the last 14 years with the one year you did. Growing by what metric? Growing by both revenue and player growth. Okay. So, you know. And the one year that we didn't grow, we declined by about 2%. That's a pretty darn good track record that I think is tough to second guess. But I mean, I, this is something that's very important to you. You've talked about how you grew up with these brands, playing these games. Yeah. Whenever you've mentioned, in particular, the games you've lit up, you're obviously very engaged. Your fans are saying, hey, the dynamic of this game is changing because anyone can just go buy the rarest cards. Does that resonate with you as a criticism? Well, I think what resonates for me is fans were concerned about the frequency of card of card set releases, yeah. particularly in Q4 last year. And, you know, we had some supply chain issues. You know, Magic wasn't immune to some snafus in the supply chain. Like we had one card set that got delayed by six months because we couldn't get a specialty glue uh, for double-sided land cards that we had inside of it. We had another one that got uh, delayed simply because, you know, demand for card stock generally across all trading card games, sports card games as well, uh, was just too much. And we had to delay it by about two months. So we had a couple releases last year where, you know, rather than having our traditional five to eight weeks of spacing, we only had a couple weeks of spacing. You know, I think some of the other complaints that we've heard, you know, particularly if you go on a site like Reddit or Twitter, um, it's a little bit of a side effect of a strategy, which is purposely saying, you know, we're making products that aren't necessarily for all players, for all products. We're trying to segment things. And there definitely is a section of players who are completionists. They want to be able to buy everything and they want to engage with everything. And as your brand gets bigger and bigger, that becomes harder and harder to necessarily be able to service that player. We'd love to, but sometimes we make a casual product for casual players and they're not really appropriate for, for you know, high-end collectors and vice versa. And then I think the last thing you have to realize is as you're starting to measure like your player base in the tens of millions of kind of active fans, and in particular, you have a game like Magic, which is so hyper-engaged and like the tenure of players can be so long. You know, you have some players who are actively playing today who've never stopped playing since when they first picked up a card in the late 90s or early 2000s. And like any kind of like player population, you're going to have this Pareto curve of players who are more open to change and less open to change. And so, of course, you know, there are some people who maybe started playing in 2002 and they want the game to be exactly the same as it was in 2002. And any kind of changes they don't really like very much and they might be quite chatty online. I just think you have to balance out kind of that individual feedback with kind of like the totality of feedback of tens of thousands of inputs um, and make sure that you're doing the right thing overall. So don't let the haters get you down. Stay the course. Or are you making any changes to kind of a tweak the strategy? 
Well, we always make changes and we always try to make, we always try to minimize any kind of like dissat. Like our, our job is to bring joy. Our, our job is not to uh, make people mad. Uh, we recognize though, inside of a, you know, a high passion player base, sometimes you're going to do some things uh, wrong or some things that's going to bristle some people the wrong way. So we try to minimize those. So, you know, I think definitely for this year, you'll definitely see better spacing across our product releases. You know, I think we're going to be more focused this year on new player acquisition, particularly with some of our new products like uh, Universes Beyond. We just announced and started previewing our latest Universes Beyond set uh, based on Lord of the Rings. We think that'll be cool for existing players. But more importantly, I think it's a great opportunity to introduce some new fans to Magic who might be geeks about Tolkien's work, but haven't picked up a card game yet. And generally speaking, you know, I think as we're able to bring in new players, that's a tide that lifts all boats. It helps our stores. It helps our player community because there's more fans to be able to play with. And if you participate on the secondary market and a collector, it's just more people to be able to share your fandom with and uh, trade with. We're going to take another break. When we come back, we'll get into the controversy over Dungeons & Dragons gaming license and whether there's a future for NFTs at Hasbro. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. We're back. So I want to talk about some Dungeons and Dragons drama. You had an open gaming license. People could just make stuff for D&D. And I think that served that community really well. It was part of the growth story of that product. There was a proposed update to that license that would have made it more restrictive. It leaked and it caused a major backlash in the community. You backed off of that. But part of that was obviously we're, we're worried about NFTs, right? Like that was part of the rationale here. We need to change this license to get ready for a world of digital scarcity. Is that on your mind that the scarcity is an important part of the project? Um, I, I think what was more on our mind with the with D and D and the open game license was two things. Um, first off, you know, very fairly, uh, our fans have a high bar for how we represent the brand and how we represent the fandom in the brand. And you know, the original open game license didn't give us a lot of kind of liberty to be able to police uh, what people were doing in our name. So that was certainly that something that was important for us because diversity and inclusion um, is very important uh, across all our brands, but notably uh, with the D&D team. And the second thing we were thinking about is like, okay, you know, we're investing a lot in content and in building the brand and in digitizing the brand. How do we make sure we kind of modernize this license, which was originally uh, created for books, uh, for this kind of like modern context and technological context? Um, making sure that, you know, the trademarks weren't misused, that we didn't get in trouble by using someone else's content inappropriately and vice versa, whether they were a fan or another large company. And I think those were the two kind of like animating forces for making a change in the license. Now, the way that we rolled things out and the way that we did it, that was, that was just a screw up. 
um, we did it wrong. Um, I think we definitely heard the feedback. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, uh, we backtracked, I think, reasonably quickly. And I think we ended at a place that's good for our creators and ultimately good for our fans. You know, it cost us some trust, particularly with some of our, our most ardent creators uh, that we're building back. But I think in general, uh, people are pleased with the result and we're moving forward. So has the license actually changed? No. Um, you know, the only change that we made to the license was uh, we put the content into the Creative Commons. So if anything, it's even more uh, robust protections for creators. Gives us a little bit of protection on our trademark because we can police it a little bit through Creative Commons. And it makes the uh, license unrevocable. So people can use it in perpetuity. Does that let you do the policing for diversity and inclusion that you want to do? Uh, it does on a light basis because we have a little bit of trademark protection with the Creative Commons where we can revoke the trademark. But I think, you know, one thing we definitely learned through the processes is the community is very good at policing <laughs> itself <Fair enough. laughs> and, uh, you know, making its feedback known pretty well. I'll connect this to the, you know, the org chart questions. Uh, the executive producer of Dungeons & Dragons, Kyle Brink, said publicly part of the issue with this whole proposal, he said it was a screw up, was that the creative and community teams at Wizards of the Coast didn't get a chance to give feedback. That is just a structure, right? It's like you've got teams that are not in, aligned in a structure to even create that feedback, especially when you're all remote, which I imagine this was all happening when you guys were mostly remote. Have you addressed that structure? Yeah, yeah. So. You know, this all came about when we were having a, a leadership transition on the brand. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people were well-intentioned. It was biz dev people and legal people who were given a task to say, hey, you know, we need to update this for X and Y reasons. They went out and started executing their marching orders. And they, they just did it in a way that firmly, uh, firmly applied foot to mouth. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, I think if we would have done it through like our more traditional means, which is play testing having the product people in charge and really trying to driving it through an ex executive producer and our designers who are super tied into the community and super tied into our fans. I think we would have done it in a far different way. And, you know, ultimately, I think we would have landed in a similar place, but I think it wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have caused too much churn and burned uh, so much trust equity with our fans. Do you think your new structure or the, uh, the horizontals inside the verticals is going to solve this problem? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it solves it in that you have very strong product-led leadership in charge of each brand. And, you know, sometimes big organizations need to, uh, you know, we're not perfect. We're going to step in it now and then. And, <laughs> you know, what you need to do when you step in it is take a step back and say, okay, what was I trying to achieve? Is that still achievable? And what's the right thing for the fan? And sometimes even big organizations on highly successful brands like D&D, they need to learn that. Yeah, And, you know, I'm pleased that we ended in a place that's good for our creators. And, um, you know, I'm pleased that the community is rallying around the brand again. We got a great movie coming out this weekend that's, you know, knock on wood, tracking really well. The reviews are great. I think the movie does a great job of introducing D&D to non-fans. But I think most importantly, it's a real love letter to the fans. And, you know, hopefully it's something that millions of people around the world who love to roll dice and, uh, use funny pretend voices around the table <laughs> can have a real celebration moment for. Yeah, my dad was an ER doctor and he was like, when you were little, I just let you stick your finger in the outlet because you got to learn somehow. <laughs> and I, yeah, it's yeah. Like, yeah. very confident. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to ask one more question on D&D &D, and then I do want to talk about entertainment. It does seem like one of the things you could do without a license that is more restrictive is keep 
the NFT companies and the metaverse companies outside of this brand, right? Just keep them at bay. You can put out your own NFTs, whatever. If there's one use case for NFTs that I've ever heard anyone say that's good, it's D&D Beyond, right? Where you get the cards mm-hmm. in the game, you can trade and sell the cards or digital goods. You could do a smart contract. You would get a cut of those secondary sales. It actually makes sense. Unlike almost every other NFT idea I've ever heard in my entire life, this is one where I'm like, all right, there's a glimmer of something there that makes sense. Is that something you want to do to kind of go into the world of digital scarcity? Because it does seem like the scarcity is important in the physical world. Well, I think for something like D&D, scarcity is maybe a little less important for us. Um, uh, magic, you know, that kind of that kind of thought of rarity mm-hmm. um, and specialness tends to be important in the collectible. D&D tends to be more of a collaborative game where scarcity isn't the real idea. It's more about social fun and helping to enable that. Um, you know, I'm not a huge fan of NFTs. I was, when I was at Wizards, I was always very skeptical <laughs> of them. Um, and the, that's why, you know, our brands didn't really participate in them. But that said, you know, the concept of the digital ownership and digital collectability is obviously going to happen. I don't think it's going to be NFTs, but I think it's obviously going to be something that happens and the permanence is going to be important for people. And something, you know, we're investing R&D and um, uh, some partnership resources against. As it relates back to the OGL, I think, you know, that's probably separate from something like that, because what the opening game license really focuses on is rules and concepts and not really imagery uh, or proper nouns. And so, you know, I think platforms like D&D Beyond, platforms like future video games that we have, or even like with Magic, Magic the Gathering Arena. This concept of digital ownership and digital tradability is definitely something um, that you'll see from us in the future. I don't know if the future is three years from now or five years from now, but it's definitely in that kind of time range. When you say it's not NFTs, do you mean it's not NFTs as we know them or it's not the blockchain or what specifically do you mean? Uh, I'm saying I don't know what it's going to be. I just I'm just pretty darn sure that the solutions we have now aren't going to cross the chasm. (laughs) Fair enough. You actually just bought D&D Beyond, right? You bought it last year for almost $150 million, And that was a really winding road for that product, right? It was at Curse, and then it was at Twitch, and then it was at Fandom, and then finally it's like back home. Yeah. Why wasn't that a thing you already had in-house? These are pretty, these, they seem like very natural extensions of the games to me. They like put them on a phone, you know? Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, back in 2016, uh, D&D, D&D was maybe a, $30, $40 million product. It wasn't very large. Um, and we didn't have like a huge budget associated with it. And this whole concept of, gosh, would people really want to play on their phones or like like things like Skype video calling, which was the state of the art back then, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, as, as shocking as that is, would that really be a thing? Would that replace kind of in-person play? So from our perspective, when we had a couple different partners, among them was Curse, who wanted to come up with D&D Beyond. You had Roll20, um, you had Fantasy Grounds, and then there's been a whole bunch since then. It made sense for us, given the size of the brand and like nascency of the opportunity, to do a partnership approach and see, you know, kind of a thousand flowers bloom and let's see what actually made sense. And what we found was, is that as uh, 5th edition started taking off and Twitch streaming was a real enabler of it, more and more people wanted to use kind of digital intermediaries, either because they couldn't connect with their friends in person 
or because they wanted to bring kind of a, a rich visual palette to the game that theater of the mind uh, didn't fully allow and and or people's pocketbooks didn't allow because they couldn't afford ten thousand dollars of dwarven forge high-end minis <laughs> but they could they could do it on something like roll 20 or dnd beyond and so you know as we saw how important dnd beyond was becoming to dnd based play made more and more sense for us to think about, hey, maybe we should be talking to uh, the current owner around kind of insourcing it into D&D. And so we had a fairly lengthy amount of discussions around that and ended up at what we thought was a fair price. Um, you know, they got rewarded for a pretty good investment that they made a couple years prior. And we got a, a fantastic platform at a good valuation that's been high growth uh, for us since we bought it. What are your plans now that you have it? Are you going to try to accelerate it? Are you going to make it more of a constant companion when you're playing the game? How are you thinking about the goals for that product? I think the general trend that we saw with D&D Beyond before we bought it are what we're trying to continue moving forward, where, you know, today, probably about close to 50% of D&D games are played using some kind of digital tabletop, most frequently D&D Beyond as kind of like an intermediary for play. And uh, we see that trend only continuing so that, you know, the vast, vast majority of play uh, is going to involve a screen of some form, either to manage your character or to kind of manage the visuals associated with the game. And, you know, we think D&D Beyond is one of the best platforms for it. You know, it's got deep integration with the content. Uh, there's a lot of fantastic opportunities for adding visuals to it. You know, we've had a kind of friends and family play test of an Unreal-based digital tabletop. That's kind of a compendium to D&D Beyond that adds kind of like an isometric high-end 3D tabletop RPG experience to it that we think could be really, really cool and something that we think people would enjoy playing. And, you know, I think the pandemic uh, with people having to play remotely and relying more and more on these digital tools just kind of accelerated that trend. So, you know, that, that's kind of where we see D&D Beyond. We think it'll continue to work with third-party uh, digital tabletops and compendiums. We see a rich ecosystem for that, but we always think kind of the, the thing that comes from the, the brand will probably have a pretty important part of the ecosystem. Let's wrap up by talking about TV and movies. You have a big movie coming out this weekend, D&D. There's a Transformers movie that I'm very excited about. Yep. Have you noticed that I love Transformers? I keep bringing them up at every turn. <laughs> uh, they were mine when I was a kid. Were you a 90s kid? Did you do uh, 80s and Beast, 90s? No, Beast Wars. Beast, yeah. I, yeah, I was an 80s kid. So Beasts were a little bit after my time, but uh, I've seen the movie and it's pretty cool. All right. Send me a copy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. But the production studio, E1, you, you put it up for sale. Yep. Parts of it anyway. You, you just bought it, basically. You bought it for $4 billion in 2019. They had a music division, which definitely didn't seem like a fit. Uh, for Hasbro. So <laughs> Death Row Records. Yeah, yeah that, that didn't sure. seem like a fit for Hasbro. <laughs> But you sold that off, and now it, the rest of it's up for sale, apart from, I guess, the children's division. Why, why get out of that business? It seems like a very natural extension for what you're doing. Yeah, so the parts that are up for sale are um, the non-Hasbro-based IP. So, you know, we looked at, like, okay, uh, if our strategy is this thing called the brand blueprint, and it's all about kind of creating play experiences and merchandise experiences uh, for content that we create and brands that we create, what brands fit in that envelope and what brands don't necessarily fit in that envelope. Transformers, super natural that we would have entertainment and help to execute entertainment for Transformers. So we want to make sure that we retain those capabilities, whether it's live action movies or kids animated TV shows. 
naked and afraid reality TV show, probably not going to do an action figure, at least not one that would ship <laughs> at Walmart. Uh, Mrs. Harris goes to Paris Monopoly, probably not going to be a huge uh, business opportunity for that. So, you know, we're taking a fairly large hunk of the film and television division, and we've had a pretty robust process with a lot of interested parties, and we're putting that up for sale. We'll be able to retain kind of the ability to do creative development, do business affairs, uh, do co-productions and co-financing for our own IP uh, in film and TV. We'll have really robust production capabilities and animation, which is very core for like a toy and game company like Hasbro. But the kind of balance of it, I think we'll be able to find a, a good home with uh, either someone who has really high, high scale in production and can kind of drive more cost savings and synergies or has their own distribution platform where they're looking for their own kind of first party IP uh, that they can then put on their platform. That process, uh, I've seen some names floating around the Hollywood trades. How close are you to a deal? Uh, we had a very robust first round. We're in the second round now, and uh, we should have an update in the next couple of months. A lot of the conversation about running a business like that was sort of what you might call a zero interest rate phenomenon in the streaming wars, <laughs> right? All of the streamers were just throwing money at everyone to get build a catalog, attract an audience, and I think become a monopoly. I'm not actually sure what the end goal of all that was, but that has pulled way back. Right. The Netflixes and HBO Maxes of the world are not spending nearly as much as they were. And they're certainly not spending in an arms race with each other. Is that part of the rationale here? Like this market has totally cooled. We want to stick with the winners. Well, I mean, I think the original rationale of we've got a brand blueprint. We want to make content that injects into it and drives kind of merchandise sales. That still holds. And if anything, I think that's become more important, you know, as uh, as people are focusing on quality over quantity, they want to have brands that break through. And, you know, I think that's why Transformers continues to be a blockbuster film franchise. I think that's why D&D has seen such a warm, critical fan reception uh, in the early previews we've had. And that's why we're seeing success with the Hasbro portfolio. I think, you know, for the non-Hasbro based IP, I think what people are looking for is consistent executional quality and people who really are a team who really know how to get this done and can do it cost efficiently because margins are becoming compressed in that space. And, you know, as you think about a content spend and you think about production, I think you have to think about it either as I'm going to drive scale and really be able to drive efficiency so I can have a better margin structure than my smaller competition, or I have a distribution platform that I need to inject content in cost efficiently, and I want to have some IP and teams that can do that. And so those are really kind of like the two nodes of interested bidders inside of E1. And we're fortunate in that, you know, the E1 team has some fantastic content, they have some fantastic brands, and they have some really good teams that I think are generating significant interest. When you talk about quality over quantity, you're an IP-based business, right? You have these big franchises, you have, these, you have a brand-based strategy. I can just make the comparison to something like Marvel, where they have made too much stuff, right? And the fans are sort of reacting to this latest phase. It, it felt like I had to do a lot of homework, and then the homework never paid off. Right. There's just like too much stuff and whatever. This comes back to sort of the animating tension that I'm, I'm kind of poking at here. The risk is you're, you're making too much stuff and you're not making enough new stuff and you won't turn the volume down and let it breathe before you come back with something new and bigger and better. Does that worry you with, with these franchises with Transformers? Now we're going to turn D&D into a movie and all these things are going to be always on? No, I mean, I, maybe if I was someone as success, fantastically successful as a Marvel, I would love <laughs> to have that problem. If I was as fantastically successful as a Marvel, I might have that concern. 
from Hasbro's perspective, you know, we have over 1,500 brands in our vault. Uh, we've got a ton of different IP and trademarks that we can be able to mine. You know, I, I think where we are in our journey, 100 years in, thinking about what our next 100 years look like is, hey, where do we really want to focus and where do we really want to break through on? And again, it kind of goes back to that three-part decision-making. What's best for the fan? What's best for the shareholder? What's best for the employee and the teammate? And so we've really focused in on with our new strategy on the five categories we think we can deliver the best play experiences on. And we have one or more brands in each of those categories we think can be a category leader inside of that. And so we're really going to focus on those and drive those to breakthrough. And I think where we are, you know, on developing each of those IPs, you know, we're maybe in the second inning of a nine hit nine inning game. Uh, I think we got a lot of upside yeah. and, you know, we're still allowing our teams the ability to kind of like think about a breakthrough. So it's not like we're just going to focus on these five categories and seven focus brands inside of them. You know, if someone comes up with a great idea, uh, we're going to chase it. For instance, we have a sci-fi RPG in development by, you know, the former head of former chief creative at BioWare, you know, uh, <laughs> James Olin, who created the game that inspired me to get into the video game industry, which led me to ultimately to Hasbro. He's developing a new IP for us. Our toy teams are developing new IPs and new ways to extend and kind of push the boundaries of where things like Nerf live or My Little Pony live. So I, I feel like we have a decent balance on that now, but maybe have me back in a year and a half and, uh, and test me and see how we did. We'll see how phase three is going. Yeah. Uh, you brought up Nerf. I actually have to end on a Nerf question and then I want to ask sort of just one last big thing question. We have an editor here, Sean Halster, who is like a hardcore Nerf fan, and he gave me so many Nerf questions, but I want to just ask one. Oh, nice. <laughs> here, here it is. It's very direct. I'm not a Nerf person, but I, I hope it's a soft dart. Uh, uh. <laughs> you, I'm just going to say the words to you and you can react to them. Uh, this is for Sean. The Nerf community's top ask is for Hasbro to embrace short darts so you can carry more and be more accurate, but instead they've introduced several new ammo types that are less reliable. How do you crack the enthusiast market? Well, uh, the first thing I tell you, what's his name? Sean? Sean. Sean, you should try our new gel fire blasters. Oh my God, uh, if he was here, he'd be freaking out right I'm sure you have like an immediate <laughs> response uh, to this. You know, they're, they're super hydrated little, <laughs> uh, little pellets uh, that, you know, kind of melt away after you, uh, after you blast them. And they're super high velocity and a, and a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, I think the second part of the question is uh, we've got this new sport that we're developing called Nerf Ball. It's like dodgeball meets basketball meets paintball. And I think Sean's going to be really psyched with the, uh, with the Nerf darts that we have for those specific blasters. All right. We're going to have you come back and just do an hour on Nerf. <laughs> it's incredible. I love that you own Nerf on top of everything else. Uh, it's very good. You said you had like a blaster division. Yeah. In yeah. Incredible. We'll have you back just <laughs> for the Nerf hour with Christian Cox. Uh, well, we should make it a twosome with Adam Kleiman who runs it for us. Very good. So here's the last big think question. I've been thinking about this throughout this entire interview. You have described Hasbro as going from a toy company for kids to an entertainment company for adults. Yep. And there's a Nerf community and they're vocal and they want things. There's a D&D community that pushed back on a copyright license change. I mean, that speaks to me and like, right, that's incredible. There's a magic community. There's a Transformers fandom. You now operate a company that services these huge fandoms that are basically like adults with money. Where like I think the phrase is kids at heart, right? It's like the, the yeah. toy industry phrase. We just call them fans. 
<laughs> this is a new phenomenon in business. Like you are a yep. company that services fandoms and the fandoms are huge and they're vocal and they're adults with money. When did you see that shift and how much farther do you think that shift goes? Oh, I think it's a, it's a seismic shift inside of the entertainment industry and the toy industry in particular. You know, when I was a kid, it was weird to be the comic book guy. It was weird to be the pop culture nerd. Um, and I think artists like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas like helped to pave the way for a whole new generation of fans who would not just be fans when they were young, but lifelong fans. And, you know, I'm among the first, I think Gen X is among the first generations who really drove that. Just look at Gen Z and millennials' favorite brands. They're usually game brands. They're usually things they played on their consoles or played on their PC or now played on their phones because it's the highest engagement entertainment property they have. I think it's incumbent upon the entertainment industry and the toy and games industry in particular to adopt a very similar methodology as professional sports have. You know, like the NFL has a, has an ethos that uh, I need to mint a fan by the age of 13, because if they don't start watching football or playing football by the age of 13, they probably never will. I think, you know, likewise, we have this amazing opportunity where we start to build a relationship with kids as early as the age of two or three in preschool. And it's up to us to keep that relationship strong well into adulthood and make sure that we make sure the brands are big enough and flexible enough and evolved enough that we can simultaneously continue to serve the next generation of fans when they're young, but have them age up and do amazing games, amazing entertainment, and amazing collectibles as they grow older and more sophisticated. But the dynamic of our market is a fandom, and the fandom is very vocal about our products. That is definitely new in toys. Oh, yeah. Like, that didn't exist. There, no one was mad about Mask going away, my favorite line of toys when I was a kid. I was, like, <laughs> furious about it. I had nowhere to go with this information. Right? I, like, called my cousin New Jersey long distance on nights and weekends to be pissed that my toy was going away. That's it. That was as far as it got. Now you've got people with money. You've got lawyers in the Reddit comments talking about your licenses. Sure. That's just a very different dynamic. It's a different audience. And I'm just wondering, is there yet another turn to it, do you think? Well, take this for what it's worth. I think you'd get maybe a, a deeper philosophical answer if you were talking to a typical toy person, someone who you know grew up working on Barbie or working on Nerf or working on Legos. Uh, my first job in the entertainment industry was the product manager for Halo. <laughs> uh, I started at Hasbro working on Magic and Dungeons and Dragons. I just think it's natural that the audience that's 13 plus, super passionate, hyper engaged, has tremendously high expectations because they spend so much of their time and money on a product. Um, I just think that's natural, that that's how you engage with people. And, you know, our company needs to be proficient at it. We need to embrace them. We need to be willing to take feedback, even when it's negative, because it often will be negative. Um, but recognize that when people care enough to give you negative feedback and to post on like a Reddit thread about a brand, that means they really love the brand. Yeah. Uh, what you should be worried about is if they stop doing it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's not that we want to create negative feelings or negative feedback loops, but I think we just need to be adults about it, understand that people are passionate. And, uh, you know, ultimately, if you do the right thing over time, occasionally when you make a little blip or bloop, things will even out and people will ultimately be happy and continue to be engaged. If I did take the most reductive version of the criticism, though, and I think this is too simple, but it's, it's, it's worth just saying out loud. It's that toys aren't for kids anymore. They're for rich adults. 
And the best toys are for rich adults, not actually children. And this is, you can, I think that's a little too reductive, but you can see what that criticism means, right? The market is moving over here to richer adults and you might leave the children behind. Uh, yeah. I mean, I would say that's too reductive versus our strategy. Yeah. Um, you know, again, going back to like kind of that NFL uh, or MLB analogy, you can never forget the core audience because that's where you meant the next generation of fans. And, you know, when you think about a company kind of going back to kind of like the overall idea behind the podcast, we've been a company that's been around for a hundred years. If we want to be around for a hundred more, we got to not only embrace the people who are 20 to 50 today and are like those hardcore fans and giving us feedback and wanting products a certain way, but we got to continue to engage the two to 12 year old because that's going to be the people who three versions from me are going to be servicing the next generation of 20 to 50 year old fans. So you got to do both and you got to do it well. You have been listening because you led right into the last question that I ask everybody, which is what should we be looking for next? Oh, gosh. You know, I think from Hasbro, you know, we're going to be doing more and more to that, you know, that engaged fan with our direct business, more and more bespoke product. Uh, Haslabs are these amazing things that we have. I think kind of mass um, personalization of toys is kind of a next big thing. And I think it's going to be kind of that more engaged fan who helps us kind of drive that. We have a very early iteration of it in our selfie series. And I think there's much more that we can do. I think the next area that you're going to see us focus on is digital, trying more ways to digitally express our brands, more games, either done by us or done by partners. And then last but not least, I think you're going to see Hasbro thinking more and more like an overall brand company. We're not going to be tied to traditional views of who our competition is. We're going to have our brands in all kinds of categories and all kinds of places, and we're going to embrace working with the best in classes on that, such that if you're a Transformers fan and you want to see something in an aisle that we're not in, like Legos, uh, you'll be able to see our brands in the Lego aisle. And you know, hopefully you'll start seeing more of that vice versa, things like in creativity and action figures and board games. You'll see other people's brands pop up in uh, where you'd expect to see Hasbro products. That's great. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on Decoder. It was really fun talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much. I had, I had fun and I'm looking forward to coming back and doing a status check in 18 months. Full Nerf episode. It's coming. And the blaster episode. <laughs> yes. Yeah, totally. We'll do the full Nerf episode. Amazing. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thanks again to Chris Cox for taking the time to join Decoder today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or follow us on Twitter and TikTok at DecoderPod. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Hadley Robinson. It was edited by Amanda Rose Smith. The Decoder Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. And our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.